everyone uh, welcome to the end user computing podcast episode number eight uh, we are live uh, with uh, Sean Bass uh, we have a special uh, President's Day uh, event for those that are in the US um, we're also joined by uh, Alex go ahead Alex hello Anton hi good evening uh, Barry Combs good evening and go ahead Sean hello everyone all right, so um, we thought it would be a good idea to have a friend of the end-user end computing community on to talk about some of the recent announcements, um, specifically around VMware. So we're really excited to have um, Sean with us. Sean, thanks for taking the time out, especially on a holiday here in the United States. Um, and I know you're traveling later this afternoon, so we appreciate you taking the time with us. There's no such thing as holidays in our business. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that isn't that the truth? And That's no one knows that better than Sean. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if you uh, wake up at three or four in the morning just to take triple shots of mocha and get back at it. I actually have it to intravenous now. Ah, perfect. <laughs> that and the alcohol, right? <laughs> How long have you been home, Sean? Uh, actually, I was home a, a large part of this week, which is which is ironic because I'm I'm not often home, so it was actually kind of nice. Yeah, that is nice. Yeah, so um, three day weekend for many of us out here, and uh, how do we take advantage of it? Well, we spend the afternoon on a podcast, so I guess that's how it goes. Um, but without further ado, I think um, we've got a lot of content to cover. Um, an hour's probably barely going to be enough time uh, to cover everything that was in probably two, two and a half hours of, uh, of webinars. Um, for anybody that missed it, um, uh, VMware created a digital inter enterprise landing page, uh, which you can find at www.vmware.com slash digital enterprise. Um, and that digital enterprise landing page has the recordings from uh, the two days worth of announcements and uh, so there's probably a lot more detail in those videos than what we're going to cover uh, on this podcast. But I think what I wanted to do was get, um, you know, Sean's opinion about things that he's excited about, things that are interesting to him, compelling in the end user computing space. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, Alex, uh, Anton, or Barry, any other things that uh, you're looking to get out of this podcast? No, certainly not. For, for me, it's just kind of maybe digging into the announcements that have been made, trying to, I suppose, wade through the marketing bits of it, understand actually which piece of it are new, uh, particularly with the, the Workspace One, and then obviously lots of uh, exciting announcements with regard to Horizon 7 that maybe some of us weren't uh, expecting. So see what Sean can tell us on those. Yep, and I, I agree on that. Yep, maybe uh, especially the Horizon 7 stuff. All right. Cool. And maybe Sean can uh, elaborate a bit on this job on, on at VMware. 
what's changed between being a consultant and now working as a CDO for VMware? Yeah, definitely. And I know, Sean, it's probably been maybe 15, 18 months or so since you uh, took the jump. Yeah, it's about 15, 16 months. 15, 16? Yeah. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say that's old news, but, you know. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, think, I think it's a big change, um, you know, for sure. Uh, the, I guess the biggest change is going from, uh, you know, working for yourself to working for someone else, which is always a difficult transition to make. Um, but I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm, I, I joined the company based on uh, a lot of fairly good people that I had, long, you know, long-standing existing relationships with. Um, as you guys know, through the CTP group, um, you know, I've known Sumit Dewan for uh, well over 10 years. And um, when I was talking to Sumit about joining, uh, it was a lot to do with the people that I was going to be working with, a lot of people that I had a, a great deal of respect for for many, many years. So that certainly made the transition a lot easier than right. going from, you know, owning and running your own consulting company to going to work for somebody that you really don't know, you know, what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and especially in, in like our business, it's all about relationships and, and who you know can make or break, uh, you know, a role that you're in. So, totally um, agree. So it's great. You know, I think Chris Wolf was maybe one of the guys you were originally talking to and then and then submit later. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I mean, I um I was I was chatting with Chris Wolf just uh, in general, talking about some things that were changing in my life and some plans I was planning to uh, to make uh, to actually leave consulting and join a, a vendor. And right. in the conversation that he and I were speaking, um, about ten minutes into the conversation, he was just you know being a good friend, listening. And then all of a sudden, like ten minutes into it, he's like, "Wait a second." Are you are you telling me that you're actually thinking about joining a vendor? He's like, I tried to hire you when I was at Gartner. You turned me down. He's like, are, are are you seriously thinking about joining a vendor? And if so, why don't you join us? And it was just odd because you know I spent you know 20 years in the ecosystem of you know Citrix and Microsoft and, and joining right. VMware just really never right. crossed my mind up until Chris had said it. And I was like, well, there's a lot of people there that I like and and. Certainly, if I look back at the history of VMware as it pertains to EUC, you know, I don't think I would have seen myself working for VMware, you know, six years ago in EUC because I just don't think that they um, had, you know, funding from the top down to really drive EUC, um, and it wasn't particularly exciting uh, for VMware in the EUC space six, seven years ago. But uh, since Sanjay Poonin took over, there's been, you know, a huge amount of uh, acceleration of development and acquisitions, and you know, they're they're doing everything right. They're fired in all cylinders. Yeah, how, definitely. How have you found that that jump to Vendorland? Because obviously, it is quite a, a leap to be someone that's so community driven as yourself and and, and independent to to maybe having to toe the company line a, a little bit and and being in the firing line with changes that are being made. Is, it must be quite a quite a difference for you. That's a, that's a great question, Barry, and um, it, it definitely is a huge change. Um, I think most of the people at VMware uh, respect the fact that I still maintain a certain amount of independence, even though I work for a vendor. So mm, most right. of the folks uh, in the marketing group uh, you know, try not to push me into things where it's just blatant regurgitation of marketing, and they allow me to kind of have a, a separate point of view and, and and speak to the things that I think are truly exciting and not, you know, just be a talking parrot for the things that are, you know, rah, rah, go company. Um, so I think that's um, that's been largely pretty well respected at VMware, which is nice. I think the other challenge that's um, been happening is 
I remember when I was talking to Smith and, and, and team about joining, I said, you know, I'm kind of getting burnt out in consulting. I've been doing it for, you know, 20 plus years and I kind of need a change of pace and do something different. And I said, I'm, I'm looking for a little bit of work-life balance. And that's the one piece that I probably haven't quite exactly found yet. I think uh, my, <laughs> my life's been just about as busy as it was before, if not, you know, 50% more, more busy. busy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's, yeah. I, I don't feel comfortable already, Sean. Yeah, I think I, I think I do feel very comfortable. I mean, like I said, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I had a great deal of respect for the people I was going to work for. And I mm. think when you have that, it automatically makes it easier. And I think from the community, that, that scene as well, when people like yourself and also Ruben that went to Atlantis shortly after, I think you changed roles. I think the, the people in the community kind of respect what you've done and your independence and, and like to take that respect with you as you go and, and hopefully build up an area of trust that you're probably asking the questions that, they would want to do internally behind closed doors. Um, so I think that is important. And then how you then position yourself, like you're saying, not having to regurgitate to take the marketing material. Yeah, I think there. I think there's a certain amount of you know. Sometimes you have to bite your tongue a little bit because there's things that, as an independent, you might have said um, that you, you don't exactly want to raise eyebrows and raise questions on everything that might have been something that you'd want to research in the past or, or have doubts about, you, you, you sometimes bite your tongue a little bit. But I think in general, like I said, the marketing folks kind of respect the fact that I'm going to have my own opinion, I'm going to say my, my mind, and they kind of leave me alone for that regard. Definitely. And I think that is the value in having someone like you you on board, um, that you are seeing like that. Um, and, and if they take that away from you, that, that kind of takes one of the USPs for, for having someone like yourself on board. That's well, good. I think the, the one area that it has helped them out immensely is um, you know, sometimes when you, you drink your own Kool-Aid too much, you, you sort of become a little bit um, slanted and, or biased in terms of your point of view on things. So I think one area that they've really appreciated me coming from the outside is to look at some of the product management planning exercises they have going and where the product's headed and kind of be a second voice to question everything, to kind of say, you know, I don't think the path you're headed on here is the right path, and have you considered looking at doing this instead? So I think they've appreciated kind of an outsider point of view that has a very, very recent, you know, customer uh, presence or point of view that sometimes you don't really get that when you're in a product team. Fantastic. I, I, do, I just also want to say um, I really appreciated the fact that you still stay passionate and involved in the topics outside of VMware EUC that, that are interesting to you. Uh, for example, like uh, the the Brightform sessions that you gave on security topics and whatnot, those were not sponsored in any way by VMware. Um, they were just you know your free flowing thoughts and things that you had researched um, prior to joining VMware. And I do think that brings a lot of validity and just community awareness to things that you're doing outside of your day job. So I applaud you for having the energy and tenacity to keep those up in uh, in spite of the heavy workload. Yeah, that gets uh, continually more and more difficult as I uh, spend more time at VMware, obviously. But um, but I, I do appreciate that um, that I'm allowed to still give uh, content that is not you know VMware sponsored or slanted in any way, and uh, I'm I'm allowed to have uh, uh, you know free reign to kind of do some of those things. So that's actually quite nice. Yeah, definitely. Um, any other? Uh, oh, oh, the other one that I wanted to talk to. Um, it's not really clear to me. Um, how or what shifted uh, when they promoted you? I'm, I'm assuming it was a promotion to the overall CTO of uh, end-user computing. So I know, I believe Noah used to be in that role, um, but I don't Correct. know how things how kind of morphed in the last three months or so when that when that happened. 
Yeah, so I can kind of give you a, a general background of how everything kind of unfolded. You know, when I when I joined VMware, um, I of course wanted to join as CTO, but uh, unfortunately at that time, uh, Kit Colbert was the CTO of End User Computing, right. and so that type of a role was not available. But um, you know, I had conversations with Summit and Sanjay about what I wanted to do, and effectively the role that was created for me was sort of like. CTO related function even though it didn't contain a CTO you know title per se um, so I did that for a period of about uh, eight or eight or ten months um, and then they made a change to make me uh, CTO of desktop technologies um, and around that same time or actually a little bit before that um, Kit decided to go uh, to the office of the CTO for VMware not within the BU specifically the EUCBU but the office of the CTO across all of VMware and gotcha. uh, joined as the CTO for the Cloud Native Apps Group. And uh, when that happened, his role was vacated, and um, Noah Wasmer stepped in as an interim EUC CTO. Um, and Noah was also getting very heavily involved with the AirWatch product management. In fact, he had relocated from Palo Alto out to Atlanta to get okay. much closer to the AirWatch team. And when that happened over a period of time, it became pretty clear, I think, to both myself and Noah and others that you know, Noah was spending so much time in the product management capacity that he wasn't having as much time to work on the CTO-related functions. Um, so um, conversations were had internally about me taking over as overall EUC CTO. Um, and so then that actually took place uh, effective as of January 1st uh, this year. So organizationally, um, I had some people that were under me in the desktop uh, CTO office previously, and what I added is uh, some people that were in the mobile side of the business for the CTO office. Um, gotcha. And we had uh, two other folks that came in from different parts of the organization. Still, uh, one of them still in the EUCBU, but one of them from the Software Defined Data Center BU that came over and joined my team. So there, I now have um, seven people in my team. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. And and so the way that you're kind of describing it sounds like it's still under the BU. Um, for you know, end user computing, which would probably Correct. include Horizon and AirWatch and those, um, and that's separate then from the office of the CTO. Yeah. So the way VMware basically operates is there is an overarching office of the CTO under Ray O'Farrell. Uh, so Ray is the CTO and the CDO, the Chief Development Officer and the Chief Technology Officer. Okay. And so there's a generic um, office of the CTO that's you know for for VMware as an entire company. And then each business unit tends to have their own CTO. There's not necessarily always an office of the CTO per business unit. Sometimes there right. is, sometimes there isn't. It depends on the BU. Um, but those particular BU-specific CTO offices don't report directly to Ray. They're more kind of like a dotted line type thing. Um, but they usually report up through the BU leadership. Got it. That makes a lot more sense. Uh, so what role is, uh, is Noah in at this point? So Noah is now leading both uh, product management and engineering for all things mobile. Oh, okay, gotcha. So sure, he, not, he really took it on full time. <laughs> yes, yeah. Noah took on a lot of responsibility, so um, and he's doing a great job. Awesome. How, how do you find the the integration with with all the technologies? I mean, uh, most of us probably started as the desktop guy or maybe the virtualization guy and, and moved into desktop, but certainly over the last eighteen months, EUC seems to be becoming more and more each time we look at it with the mobile stuff coming in, with the identity management stuff coming in. There's so much, it, it, it's swelling and expanding so much that it can be very difficult to try and keep abreast of all those technologies. How, how, how do you kind of manage that from the role that you're in? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the way that I kind of explain it to people is there's already this convergence of desktop and mobile that was happening in the course of the last couple of years. Um, in fact, you know, while I think most people perceive me as largely a desktop-focused guy because I've been in the desktop industry for, you know, 20 years, um, the reality is is that uh, prior to joining VMware for the last three or four years, I actually did a number of projects for customers that were mobile-focused, so implementations of uh, good uh, Dynamics and Good for Enterprise, implementations of MobileIron, implementations of Afaria, implementations of um, uh, Zen Mobile. So I have been involved in a variety of EMM-related projects as well as working with some enterprise architect teams that were doing mobile app development. So I'm pretty familiar with the mobile space, um, but being that it wasn't 100% of my day job, I was kind of split between desktop and mobile. But I think what a lot of organizations have been doing in the course of the last, I'd say, zero to three years is starting to merge their mobile teams, you know, historically the BlackBerry team, later the Good and AirWatch team and that kind of stuff, um, merging those people with their desktop engineering team and making them one EUC platform team. So because customers are doing that, I think it's pretty logical that everyone else aligns around the same kind of thing of a converged team. Is that going to happen, or do you think it's going to happen? I think it's already happening. In fact, a lot of our customers that I talk to are already merging their mobile and desktop teams, so it's already happening. So, so to ask a, a bit of a, a leading question, I suppose, how do you see that happening inside VMware? Is, is, since AirWatch uh, acquisition, AirWatch has always felt from, I suppose, a partner's perspective, is still sort of arm's length away from VMware, trying to work closer together, but really still acting as its its own organization. Are you starting to see inroads coming to bring the two teams together now? Yeah, so I think, you know, at the, at the acquisition of AirWatch, I think it was really important to treat those guys as if they were still kind of a startup, just keep the pace of innovation, keep the pace of the sales momentum, keep everything going the way that it was. And, and frankly, if you had taken a smaller company like AirWatch and stuck them into the VMware machine of processes and all that kind of stuff, you probably would have messed up their growth pattern, to be honest. I mean, VMware is a, a much larger company, more established, been around for a longer time, and, and has you know, kind of set in their ways on how, how things get done. So I think it was actually a smart move um, on Sanjay's part to really kind of leave AirWatch alone as it is uh, and keep executing the way that they're executing. And uh, over time, of course, I'd say, you know, 18 months uh, post-acquisition uh, started looking like a good opportunity to say, okay, now that we continue to grow the sales of the business and grow um, the, the product, now is a good time to start looking a lot closer at how these things integrate together. And um, if you look at what we were doing in EUC a year ago, we had something called the Workspace Suite, um, those that are familiar with uh, VMware uh, sales or VMware partnership would know that we had something called a workspace suite. And the workspace suite was really just kind of an umbrella license that a customer, mostly larger customers that are buying uh, both desktop and mobile, could kind of get a SKU that would cover every user for any use case, you know, desktop or mobile or whatever the case may be. Um, but really, at, at the stage that Workspace Suite came out, it really was just a suite of products. It was a SKU that allowed you to buy at a discount both sets of products, but there was really no integration or functionality integration between the two product lines. And what's different between Workspace Suite that we were offering last year and what we've announced with Workspace One is really the um, kind of commingling of these product pieces uh, into a kind of cohesive offering. 
Now, it's not to say that everything is perfect and it's all 100% integrated. There's still a lot more work to be done, but we've started those integration. I shouldn't say we started those integration tests. We're shipping those integration points uh, now within Workspace ONE. So a good example of that is uh, we have a common app catalog uh, that is leveraged via the IDM that can serve up uh, you know, mobile apps to mobile devices. It can serve up SaaS applications to either platform, and it can serve up uh, you know, Windows applications uh, or Linux you know, applications or desktops to either type of device. So this common catalog was kind of a first uh, stake in the ground of this is where the integration is going to begin. Um, and then there's a, a bunch of other integrations that we're working on where we're tying NSX into mobile and NSX into desktop and uh, various other things like that. So it's really kind of the, the first uh, position where we do the integration is the, is the catalog. Hey, Sean, is that, um, I know we, we only saw limited bits and pieces of the new App Store um, during the, the webinar, but is that an evolution of the Workspace portal or is this a new product altogether that takes bits and pieces from existing products? So that's a great question, Dane. It actually is a evolution of the Workspace portal. So uh, Workspace was renamed to VMware Identity Manager. Now there's a lot oh, right. of other okay. things that have happened to VMware Identity Manager aside from just a rename. Uh, so for instance, Workspace historically was always a on-premises deployed type offering. There really wasn't a lot of customers deploying it as a cloud-based as-a-service offering. Um, okay. But VIDM has been built around this notion that you're going to use it as an IDAS platform, uh, identity as a service platform. So effectively it means that you generate a tenant environment in the cloud and there's a on-premises connector component um, for um, the VIDM technology, which also, by the way, we, we've announced uh, with the new Workspace ONE offering that we're able to uh, have the on-prem AirWatch connector act as a conduit for VIDM. So customers don't need to deploy two on-prem connectors like they used to have to do with Workspace. Um, now you can use the AirWatch connector uh, as the pass-through for VIDM to do your on-premises AD connector, for instance. Okay, gotcha. So that, that's the one-touch mobile SSO piece as well, right? The IDM piece is, is what's doing the one-touch? Well, there's, there's two different pieces of it. So, um, you know, we, we've always had the notion of doing single sign-on authentication for SaaS-based applications with the IDM. Right. That was always something that was kind of part of the offering. Um, what's changed with Workspace ONE is we've uh, created uh, what is sort of an industry-first uh, cloud-based uh, KDC or Kerberos uh, Key Distribution Center. Um, so what this allows you to do is have native mobile applications that are using certificate-based authentication for single sign-on uh, through the IDAS offering um, without having to do any special app wrapping or SDK requirements or any of that kind of stuff. So it's really a way to embrace what we've done for SaaS applications, single sign-on, for native mobile applications. And this is an industry first. There's no one else that's doing this yet. But it's still AirWatch, or not? So, so it is. So it, it leverages AirWatch, and in fact, um, you have to have a device enrollment in order to take advantage uh, of, yeah. of this single sign-on. And the reason for that is uh, in order to be able to push a certificate down onto a yeah. device, you have to have it enrolled into an MDM solution. Okay. Um, however, one of the things that we're trying to do around Workspace ONE, and I don't know if this was really came across well uh, in, the, um, in the launch activities, but we're trying to be able to provide customers with a stepped mechanism for enabling capabilities. And what, what I mean by that is historically in the Workspace Suite product portfolio, we basically told people, buy our mobile and desktop products through this SKU and you're going to get everything that you need. 
And what we're trying to tell people now with Workspace ONE is that you can buy what you need for a customer um, in a graded type of uh, stepped fashion. So if all you need is the ability to have sort of basic um, you know, SaaS-based applications and internal web applications that are tunneled and some mobile apps that are provisioned and your basic productivity type apps, your PIM apps, um, then you can do that for a very low cost license number um, that does not include all the other products in the portfolio. So that would be a great use case for, let's say, a bring-your-own-device type model for somebody who's bringing their own iPhone or Android uh, device into work, wants to take advantage of SaaS apps and mobile apps, and maybe doesn't want, like maybe there's a, there's a concern from the, from the consumer, they don't want their mobile device to have an MDM agent on it. Right. Because, because there's a perception that MDM agents are invasive and that they can you know, read your text messages and view the photos of your family and all that kind of stuff. And the reality is I don't think people realize is that most of the mobile operating systems will focus on iOS and Android because that's really all that matters. You can't actually read text messages of your users. I mean, the MDM agent doesn't allow you to have that privilege because the mobile operating system vendors prohibit MDM vendors from intercepting text messages. But there's this perception in the industry within MDM and EMM that you have the right to do those things once the agent's on there. So I think we need to do a lot yeah. to help people understand what privacy they're giving up by enrolling that device. Um, and there's some things in the future that we're going to be doing in AirWatch that are going to expose that and make it very visible to the user what privacy they're giving up around the, the, the mobile device enrollment. Um, but to, to get back to the original point of this you know, single-touch mobile single sign-on piece, that does require enrollment, but it doesn't mean that you're doing full-blown device management configuration. So we've put that into a um, advanced edition of the Workspace ONE offering. So for the BYOD piece, you have to have an enrollment, but it doesn't mean that we're doing low-level device management pieces, but we have to have the agent on there in order to push down the certificates to allow for this mobile single sign-on to work. So, yeah, that, Sean, that, Sean, are you doing something in the line of um, uh, the virtualization stuff that um, BlackBerry did with, like, uh, decoupling the business side of the phone to the personal side of the phone? Um, we have a split billing offering, but this is not any kind of personal work device segmentation thing. This is just a um, enrollment of the device so that we can manage certificates so that we can allow people to do this mobile single sign-on. But this is not necessarily a, a split persona or split billing type offering, although AirWatch does have a split billing offering, but that, that's not related to this. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and I, I don't know if it did come across well in the, the webinar portion of it, but there was a blog post that talked about this stepped offering that you're mentioning, Sean. Um, the, uh, the one by Louis Cheng, Embracing Consumerization for the Digital Workspace. Uh, VMware introduces Workspace One. And in there, there's a really good visual um, that talks about the you know six steps from no device management uh, in a BYO model all the way up to complete management. So Right. You know, yeah, that, that diagram is what I was referring to, the kind of stepped offering that for customers that just want basic SaaS apps and mobile app access, we can give them that at a very low-cost offering. And then if the customer decides that they need you know, a mobile SDK for app wrapping, or they need, um, you know, unified endpoint management with our with our Project A squared offering we announced. That's where they would step up to the next edition. And then, if they want everything, which used to be what we called Workspace Suite, they can buy the Enterprise Edition that includes the kitchen sink. 
But do you expect still two different access scenarios, Sean, like MDM and MAM? Um, I think you know, so it's come together. No, so I mean, it's 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 all ultimately part of EMM. And when you're talking about what EMM is, it's it's MDM, it's MAM, it's mobile content management. It's it's all of it together. Um, but that being said, there's different use cases for different customers. Some customers want to just do mobile app wrapping and uh, and and treat everyone like a BYOD user and not have any kind of device enrollment. Um, but it's 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 too difficult to paint that as a black and white situation because, as I mentioned, like for this mobile sign-on thing, you have to have the ability to do an enrollment in order to push down a certificate onto the device. Yep, so exactly. even though some people want to go with the MAM-style approach and do mobile app wrapping, if you want to do certificate management, you can't do it without an enrollment agent. And then another scenario with mobile application management that somewhat lets you down is there are certain mobile applications, and I'll pick on Microsoft because they're an example everyone knows, you know, Skype for Business. Microsoft is not going to give any company, even if you're the federal government of the United States, they're not going to give you the mobile apps to wrap them with an SDK. Right. So exactly. a lot of the reason why AirWatch created the ACE uh, app config for the enterprise uh, standard was to be able to provide the ability to inject configuration settings into a mobile app that doesn't require a SDK wrapper approach, but instead injects them based on the operating system configuration settings. And what this standard allows you to do is to have applications like a Salesforce.com where, you know, Salesforce, when you download it from the public app store, you have to go in there and configure your tenant location or your server ID, plus put in your user ID and password. So it's multiple steps for the user to get into that application. And it's like what, each application comes with their own API. Exactly. So what, what the ACE standard allowed us to do is to say, for all the ISVs that want to join in this ACE program, we'll, we will allow uh, companies that have employees using those applications to download the app from the public app store, but basically inject configuration settings like the tenant ID or server name, as well as let the user do a single sign-on login to that native mobile application without yeah. having to wrap it with an SDK and give people the ability to download apps from the public app store uh, without having to rewrap them with an SDK. Because the minute you wrap with an SDK, the other challenge you end up having is you, you've got to have a different flavor of that app for every mobile SDK. So if you look at like a Salesforce or a Box, they've got an app for MobileIron, they've got an app for Bo uh, for AirWatch, they've got an app for Zen Mobile. And so for the ISV, it's very complicated to have all these different SDK versions of their app. But by leveraging the ACE approach, they can have one version of the app that's an ACE compliant app that any EMM that is leveraging ACE can plug into their uh, corporate app store for their customers without having to do a separate wrapping of that application. So probably wrapping is going to be legacy in the future. Well, there are or still use cases for wrapping as well. I think for the generic things that ACE provides to allow you to inject configuration settings, um, that will be broadly applicable to all sorts of ISVs. Um, I think the challenge with mobile app wrapping that there are still sometimes reasons to do that is if you're not comfortable with the operating system level uh, data security controls and you want to implement your own data security controls, that's an area that you can do that through a mobile SDK and set security policies where data can't be copied in or out or if you want to encrypt the data in a certain way or, or things like that. So there are still reasons for mobile app SDKs, but I think things like ACE do greatly reduce the necessity for it. 
One of the, the elements that I, I was looking at um, inside uh, Workspace ONE was the uh, collaboration piece, so the social cast uh, integration as well as Boxer. you want to tell us a little bit more about that and what that gives you and, and, and what the thinking is with that? Sure. So um, Boxer, if you guys, I'm not sure if you are or not aware of what Boxer was prior to the acquisition, but it was effectively a, a third-party uh, PIM client for iOS and Android and basically allowed you to... Um, you know, manage your email, contacts, calendar, all that kind of stuff um, as a standalone application. Um, you can kind of associate it with a lot of the other apps that were out there in the past, like an Accompli or something like that, very similar in concept. Um, has a lot of great, rich capabilities that allows you to tie in, you know, third-party EFSS platforms so that you can uh, quickly access things like a Dropbox or a Box repository without having to leave your email composition um, and it also allows for a lot of, you know, collaborative uh, communication with, uh, with coworkers. So you can be able to see somebody's status, uh, whether they're online, offline, what they're up to. Um, and we're actually integrating the social cast uh, chat capability into Boxer so that you'll effectively have kind of a one place to go that contains your instant messaging presence content uh, as, as, uh, for, for chat purposes as well as your inbox content with the ability to tie in third-party EFSS and, and those types of things. So really kind of a single place to go to work on your content. Now, there may be some customers that don't want to use a third-party uh, you know, email replacement. They may want to use native email. And so for that, of course, you could always do an MDM profile and deliver secure email content with selective wipe uh, on iOS and Android. But for those customers that maybe don't trust certain platforms, I mean, there are customers that you know, they, they trust iOS as is, but they're concerned about Android due to either, you know, OS fragmentation or whatever the case may be. Um, there may be different policies that the organization wants to employ. So they can say, if you have a, uh, a corporate-owned device, uh, we're going to give you native email because we know that we can wipe the whole device. But if you have a BYO device, maybe we're going to give you a sandboxed mail client like Boxer because we know we can control the policies that, that, that you know, prohibits data from getting uh, leaked outside the container, as an example. I have, an, I, have, I have a separate container on the device, yeah, correct. Right, with, well, with, with the social cache chat, is that designed to be something competitive, kind of, that would be used for like Skype for business, or is it going to be used for specific use cases around collaborating around content? I, I, I'm not quite seeing the, the specific use for the social cache element. Yeah, so I think that's um, you know it's a good question. It's a little bit early to to answer that. I, I don't think um, anyone's going to view it as necessarily something that's going to automatically displace uh, you know your link or Skype for business type approach. I mean, customers may still use these things uh, together collaboratively. I mean, I think that there are reasons for a chat platform that is integrated into threaded workflow style uh, efforts as opposed to just a one to one or one to many chat that you. Uh, open and close, and it has no real, you know, um, ability to maintain history or be integrated into the workflow of an existing project. So I think there are reasons for both systems to exist. I don't mean to paint a picture that says that social cast chat is going to displace Skype or Link, because I, I think there are different reasons that you would use them. Mm. I, think, um, I think there is a definite need to be able to, uh, as you say, chat around content, being able to, to link a, a conversation with a particular document or a particular workflow, as you say, and then be able to click on that workflow, that document, and see the conversation that surrounds that. I think that, that kind of approach adds a lot more value over than that one-to-one, one-to-many that Skype for Business gives you at present. 
Yeah, and just a, a message from the chat from Eduardo Molina. Uh, have you again, Eduardo? Um, he's asking if this will be integrated with existing chat solutions like Jabber and Skype, etc. Um, so I don't know if you specifically talked to that or not. Um, yeah, and I, 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 again, I think it's a little bit early to talk about any of that. I don't think all the decisions have been made there, but at the moment this is primarily intended to be something that is integrated in both Boxer and the SocialCast platform. Uh, future integrations or ties to other platforms, I think, are TBD at this point. Very cool. Um, another chat just came in, a uh, question around um, what does Workspace ONE mean for AirWatch and... Sean, you and I were talking about this just uh, just briefly. I know, you know, we have to just toe the line of NDA and whatnot. But um, any thoughts, or not thoughts, but if anybody missed it in the announcements, uh, there's so much tech in Workspace One that's coming from AirWatch. Um, what can you share there? Make the count. Yeah, so I think um, you know some of it should be kind of obvious in terms of. As I mentioned earlier, the unified app catalog concept, it really bridges together uh, AirWatch use cases around what you would do on a mobile device, whether it's a tablet or a smartphone, and then what you would do on a desktop laptop device. Um, I think, you know, historically, most of the EUC-related solutions have been kind of an either-or. You know, you're either accessing these things from a desktop or laptop, or you're accessing it from a smartphone uh, or, or tablet. And I think that uh, Workspace ONE is really the kind of the fusing of those that basically says it doesn't matter what kind of device you're coming from. You're going to have the same look and feel of the resources that you need to do your job. Um, and that's uh, going to come through this common app catalog. Um, but also it's uh, kind of about the, the, the identity that you use when you're operating with those solutions. So if you're coming in from a smartphone that's got, you know, like I said, in the case of iOS, you've got Touch ID, that can basically act as a secondary factor of authentication to basically allow you directly to get into those mobile applications and SaaS applications. Um, and then we've done a lot of work as well in Horizon 7 to uh, enable a single sign-on on that platform so that we're not actually passing passwords from the endpoint client device uh, to the Horizon desktop. We're actually leveraging single sign-on for that as well. So I think identity is becoming a very, very key part of this. And if you guys have ever seen you know, Sanjay over the course of the last you know, 12 to 18 months, he's talked a lot about um, you know, kind of end-user computing sitting on top of the software-defined data center, and there's this layer of identity that sits in between it. So whether you're talking about a mobile use case or a fixed function use case, identity really does connect you know, the, the device with the application backends. Yep. So um, just to kind of highlight a couple of the other announcements, um, and then we'll we'll dive into each of these. Um, we've been talking about Workspace ONE for the last probably 15, 20 minutes. Um, other noteworthy announcements, and probably where we'll spend a, a good chunk of the rest of the time, is the Horizon 7 announcement, uh, formerly Horizon VIEW and VIEW before that, um, App Volumes 3.0, uh, Horizon Air hi Hybrid Mode, which was formerly... Uh, called Project Enzo, and then a couple that we'll probably not have time to uh, address today in, in any detail is uh, VMware Virtual SAN 6.2 or vSAN, and then the, the vCloud and vRealize suite, which have been revved to version 7. So um, why don't we just spend a little bit of time talking about Horizon 7, because I know there's lots of really good tech in there that, frankly, some of us didn't think would make it to the on-prem products, so... Uh, the instant clone for just-in-time desktops. I'm, you know, personally very excited to see that that made it um, into the announcement for Horizon 7. 
Um, there was originally speculation whether or not that was just going to be uh, a Project Enzo feature or, or whatnot, but um, good stuff in there as well as uh, Blast Extreme. Um, but Sean, I, I want to hear from you. What, what pieces in here are you most excited about um, from the Horizon 7 app volumes or um, ha how do we abbreviate Horizon Air Hybrid Mode? Ham? We call that Ham now? No, no, let's let's not use ham. That's a that's a really horrible name. All right. So I'll, I'll um, keep calling it Enzo. <laughs> so where, where do you want to start first? Do you want to start? Let, um, let's do Horizon Seven. Um, okay. Either Instant Clones, Blast Extreme, or anything else in there that you're you're personally excited about. Sure. So I think I think Instant Clones is going to be something that's going to be really really big. Um, you know, in the in the course of the last you know I don't know seven years or so that I've been doing VDI implementations. You know, I, I've long been a big proponent of uh, persistent VDI. Right. And I think a lot of people misunderstood uh, about persistent versus non-persistent, thinking that I thought that non-persistent was dumb and that nobody should be doing it. You really should really do persistent VDI. Um, what my main message there was to people is not that non-persistent was dumb, but just that it's incredibly difficult to get there because the technologies we had back at that time, um, you know, when I speak about uh, the technology we had to get to non-persistent, I really mean kind of like the layering technologies that existed in the early days, were really pretty immature, and it made it very difficult to um, be able to support a non-persistent use case across a large number of desktop users. Right. So um, because of that reason, and because of the fact that most users, you know, if you're doing a VDI onboarding project, it's, it's hard enough to get all of your virtual desktops into the data center let alone all the other things you have to deal with. So what I was usually advising customers to do is just get your VDI project done as a persistent VDI and then make a second pass a year or two years down the road and look at what workloads you can make non-persistent after the fact. And you know, that advice was kind of born out of the fact that people end up getting you know, paralysis through analysis. You, know, you spend so much time trying to rationalize your app portfolio and never actually getting the project done. And I've seen a lot of VDI projects stall just because they burn too many hours trying to figure out how to get you know the first few desktops onboarded, right? So along those lines, you know, Instant Clone is exciting to me because it's one of those technologies that you know I, I had kind of made the decision that I was going to be joining VMware around I don't know July or August uh, 2014, and it was VMworld 2014. I was a presenter, independent presenter. It wasn't because I was at VMware at the time, but I was scheduled to present it at VMworld 2014. And when I sat in that keynote where I saw the vision for JIT desktops and the announcement of Evo Rail and Evo Rack and all these kind of things, I mean, I was, I was blown away. I was like, wow, VMware is really doing some amazing innovation here. And um, then, of course, I joined VMware and I got in the inside and um, there were a little bit of challenges in terms of how Instant Clone was going to come to market, whether it was going to be a component of Enzo, whether it was going to be a component of Horizon. And, you know, part of me on the inside kind of died because I was like, oh, my God, this tech could be so awesome. We've got to get it out <laughs> to market. So there's a, there's a little bit of frustration on my part, like, come on, we got to ship this thing. Um, yeah, exactly. But, of course, now we finally did uh, within Horizon 7, so it's, uh, it's very exciting. So, so what is it about the JIT desktops that you think um, makes the persistent desktop or non-persistent desktop more achievable out the gate? Is it the combination of that with the writable volumes or app volumes or any other specific pieces there that, that make you see this a little bit more of a reality? 
Well, I think if you look at some of the historical ways that, that layering could have been done, I think one of the main challenges you end up being faced with is kind of, uh, you know, how many silos do I end up with? So if there's a different set of core applications that has to be spread across different workload use cases, you don't want to find yourself in a situation where you've got, you know, 20 base images and that those base images you're having to do repeated maintenance of the same type across all of them yeah, exactly. uh, in order to update software. And so I think what's, you know, particularly exciting about this is that you can obviously tie different app stacks to different, different users' desktops, which means you can avoid having to have multiple different, you know, base image silos, which is great. Um, and I also think the other thing that, that's compelling about separating the applications from the operating system is that you then have the ability to perform maintenance without having to perform server reboots. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of, of Citrix PBS. You know, I've done lots of projects implementing PBS for customer environments. One of the things that I always disliked about that approach, and it's really not just, it's not a PBS-specific thing, it's anything where it's based on the, the, bare, the, the base image. So link clones and MCS equally apply to this problem. It's that if you have to go back and update that base image software, you're having to do so by rebooting your whole environment. And so the thing that I like about segmenting applications away from the OS is having the ability to perform maintenance of an application in a virtual desktop without actually having to kick people out and, and reboot systems and do an entire outage just to roll over a change. Yeah, that's huge. I'm curious how much that's going to impact the RDSH space uh, for Horizon as well, or if this is primarily going to be a VDI-focused discussion. Yeah, so um, in, in full transparency, the first release of Instant Clone that's uh, going into Horizon 7 um, is only going to be supporting uh, you know, pooled uh, desktops. It's not going to be supporting right. uh, RDSH. Um, so at this stage, it won't have a direct impact on RDSH workloads. Uh, those will have to be handled through traditional View Composer. Um, of course, in a future release, uh, we hope to bring the, um, the, the feature for instant clones to RDSH workloads, but at this time, all we're going to be offering is VDI. And I think um, for a lot of reasons, that kind of makes sense if you think about the scale of the problem. You know, in RDSH, you might have 100 servers. Uh, in VDI, you've got thousands. So the necessity yeah. to have this JIT model is amplified in the case of VDI, so it kind of makes sense to bring it there. Um, but yeah, absolutely, it makes a lot of sense to bring to RDSH workloads as well. Yeah, definitely. And um, now that we know that it's coming in, you know, the GA bits for Horizon 7, I'm really anxious to get my hands on the binaries and, and the tech to see, you know, what the architecture looks like, how it compares to, you know, the View Composer model, which was database related and had heavy connections into vCenter. Um, just curious to see what the Instant Clones piece is going to look like. Um, and I won't make you share that here because I'm sure it's a little bit <laughs> early. Um, but uh, just to say that once the, the beta bits or the pre-release bits become available, I'm very curious to get hands-on for that part. Yes, you are, uh, you are one of many people who is very curious to get access to it. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose one of the other bits was the Blast Extreme stuff. Are you able to explain a little bit more as to what Blast Extreme is and, and why VMware going down that route? Obviously, Blast was used previously for any sort of HTML access. And why a protocol junkie like Sean Bass would be curious about Blast Extreme or interested <laughs> in Blast Extreme. I mean, come on, Sean. You've, you've made your name in the industry as being the biggest protocol junkie out of all of us. And I think that was 
for me personally, the thing that I noted the most when you joined VMware is, oh wow, like all of these protocol analysis sessions that he's done for years and years and years, I've watched you say over and over again that VMware is getting better, VMware is getting better, VMware is getting better, and then you joined VMware and I was like, oh, I guess they were getting that much better. Yeah. Um, so, so the Blastic Stream stuff, I'm really excited about it as well. Obviously, lots of partner work with NVIDIA Grid. Um, there's some stuff that's public. Feel free to talk about whichever parts you want to talk about. Yeah, so to, to be very clear, I, I didn't join VMware because of Blast, just to, <laughs> just to clarify that. Um, but no, you know, I kind of, I kind of knew that there were some things happening, um, not only from some conversations I had with some folks at VMware, but it became pretty obvious if you were looking at uh, the releases of Horizon that have occurred uh, over the last few years that uh, there was this alternate protocol that was in the product. Um, you, you obviously witnessed it with the HTML5, um, uh, HTML5 access solution, and uh, when we right. launched our Linux virtual desktop platform, that's also. Uh, blast protocol, so you, you you kind of could see it, even though we weren't really messaging it. Um, but to, with Horizon Seven, this is the first time that we're truly messaging that there is this alternate uh, protocol. But I want to make it very clear because I think a lot of people surmised this. Um, I saw a couple of blogs post Horizon Seven launch where people were saying, "Oh, this is the end of PC over IP. Everything's going blast." And I want to make it perfectly clear that there is no intent to sunset the PC over IP protocol as part of this. There will be customers that will want the zero client approach of PC over IP where everything is you know, kind of firmware based. Um, and so there will be customers that will want to continue to use PC over IP and we have no plans on uh, dropping the support of that in the platform. So this really is just meant to be a secondary offering where people can um, use this alternate protocol uh, for things that they find compelling or interesting about it. Um, being that a lot of this protocol operates on uh, H.264, we can take advantage of having uh, client-side hardware decoders, uh, which pretty much every device made in the last probably five years has an H.264 compatible hardware decoder, right. which really allows us not only to um, offload a lot of the decoding that would normally be done in the CPU off to the hardware chip, um, but also then preserves a significant amount of battery life. And we haven't given exact guidance on how much better battery life you get, um, but we, we've seen some in internal testing, some pretty significant battery savings using a uh, smartphone or tablet device that's got an H.264 decoder chip. We can ex significantly extend the battery life of that device. So you are going to offload stuff to the iPad, for instance? Um, I'm not going to speak about each specific device, but yes, we can leverage hardware decoders in most of the modern devices to do all the decoding. Does it require an NVIDIA chip for doing that, or would it work with any device, Intel, AMD? So it will work with any device that has a hardware H.264 decoder. Yeah, I think the NVIDIA piece is for the data center side. From yeah, so there's, there's, there's two different sides of, of an H.264 protocol, okay? There's, there's the encode side, which is where you would leverage a GPU to do the H.264 uh, accelerated encoding. And then there's the client side, which is where the decoding happens. Now, both sides can be done in software. It's obviously less optimal for uh, on the client device for battery life and for CPU consumption if you use the software-based decoder. So we want to leverage the hardware-based decoder where we can. On the host side, if you don't have a GPU, you have to use a software encoder. Um, but uh, if you have a, a GPU available, you can significantly drop the latency and the experience uh, improvement by leveraging the hardware encoder. 
Yeah, and I, I did see that uh, it leverages both TCP and UDP, so hoping to you know do some testing there and see how it works across lossy type of networks as well. So yes, should be should be pretty fun to see uh, how Blast Extreme is going to change the game there. I'm actually a bit interested in also hearing how how far can the can it go. So um, is it possible? Because you know VR right now, everybody talking about VR is going to be big here in 2016. But VR, I, have, I haven't seen the new generation of VR working in a remote protocol. And I guess you know when it becomes so mature at enterprises that they want to use it, they probably also want to use it for remote graphics. But that also pushes the frames per second from the 60 barrier, 60 frames per second, and beyond. And, and is this something? I don't know again if you can talk about this, Sean, but. Um, I, I know that this has been the, the the limitation right now with others that they can only go up to 60 frames and that's that's it. Yeah, I, I have to imagine the bandwidth consumption more than 60 frames yeah, per second. Bandwidth, has to doesn't be like... matter. bandwidth doesn't matter. So here's the thing: a lot of companies that work with high-end graphics, yeah, bandwidth doesn't matter. This is you know the world we live in right now. A lot of people have a good lines and. They want to have a good experience, and I know, of course, there always be these need need see people where they need, you know, high latency and so on. But most of the places where you use virtualizing high-end graphics, they got some pretty good lines. Also, now I'm talking about very like super needs, which is virtual reality, right? And that requires low latency, a very low latency, and and you know, super high uh, frame rate. Well, I guess uh, the next round of protocol bake-offs will uh, have to prove out what it's capable of, right? Right, Thomas? No, no, no I'm just interested to hear, to hear Sean's um, thoughts about what, what I'm talking about here. If, um, because I know this is like not needs, but like super, super needs, right? So yeah. is, it, is it okay if I, uh, if I pull a Tim Cook and say VR is interesting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bold statement. So you know, Dan, when you're when you're talking about uh, when you're talking about all that and and um, you know what what impact VR has on things uh, and, and Thomas as well, I, I just I, I fear for the day when you know Benny and Ruben and and possibly me are doing remoting protocol comparisons. We're standing on stage with VR goggles trying to show people how it works. I mean, talk about uh, labeling yourself as a super dork. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's a reason why there's so many pictures floating around of people with the VR headsets on their head. It's not because they're good looking. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, Thomas, you and I have uh, have talked about this quite a bit. Like, what's going to happen in the future when the the VR headsets don't look so dorky and they look more just like sunglasses with everything self-imposed with augmented reality and everything else uh, directly inside the glass. And I think that'll make a huge difference. Um, so in terms think, of adoption, let, let me let me jump on something that that Thomas kind of alluded to in terms of you know user experience in general, you know uh, frames per second, all these types of things. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that there is still much work to do to make the remoted experience indistinguishable from local. There's no doubt that there's additional work to do, and I think it would be premature to say that um, you know remoting protocol wars are completely over and that all protocols are the same. I think there's nothing that could be further from the truth. Um, and as an industry, we still have a lot of work to do to make the experience you know perfect. There's there's a lot more that can be done. 
Um, I think when you think about the things that affect user experience in a remoted situation, it really comes down to the same things we've always talked about. It's bandwidth, it's latency, and more specifically in latency, it's the jitter or the variable latency, and it's packet loss. And those are kind of the things that you're, you're never going to change about a remoted experience connection. I don't personally worry about bandwidth too much because I think in most organizations, the corporate connections they have are more than adequate for a great experience, uh, even in you know HD and, and, and 4K scenarios. Um, the, the latency and packet loss is the part that requires a little bit more work across the board. But one thing that is changing, at least in the mobile world, um, as you guys are aware, there's multiple carriers that are working on ratifying 5G standards. And when fifth generation wireless comes about, you're talking about gigabit, you know, speed capacities in mobile with with pretty low latency as well. I mean, the the, the speculations I've heard around 5G is that you could actually have sub millisecond latency on your on your wireless network. Now, that doesn't refer to the end to end. Like if you're if you're coming from you know Asia Pacific over to North America to hit your virtual desktop, you're still dealing with that WAN latency, but you're cutting out a significant amount of the mobile. Uh, aspect of the latency piece there. So as fifth generation networks come into maturity, um, I think this remote experience thing is going to be a, a, a very, very minor problem when it comes to mobile. Any other thoughts on that, Thomas? Anything you want to add? No, I, I'm just, no I, I love that, that uh, VMware is showing a lot to NVIDIA and everything they're doing. It's really, really awesome because it's just making the experience much better. Uh, and, and you know, technology is evolving so fast now. You know, they, they're, they're looking at 4K. I look at 4, at 5K, and at CES they look at 8K. And it, it, you know, the things are just going. It, it's it's really crazy. But when we look at enterprises, they not everybody adopting 4K. I think again, this is needs, right? The stuff we talk about is still needs. Well, I think you're always going to have. Um a bit of a lag between what's available and what's commercially deployed in, in enterprises. I mean, I remember some of my banking customers that, you know, when when almost every consumer had, you know, um, flat screen LED monitors, they still had CRTs on everyone's desktop. And so right. uh, customers are always going to sometimes lag behind the latest and greatest. But I think the, you know, kind of consumerization market is really starting to drive more of that stuff where, you know, if people are buying it and want to use it in a BYD capacity, you, you can't just say, well, the company hasn't deployed it, so you can't use it yet. People are getting it at home, and therefore, you have to be able to support, you know, things like, you know, when Retina Display came out on Mac, most people weren't equipped to handle higher resolution displays, but you have to adopt these things as customers buy them. But actually, I have a question regarding the, uh, the, the Blast Extreme with the 4K. That does it mean, then, is that the biggest profile from NVIDIA? Because when, when I look at the new, the new M60 and M6 from NVIDIA, the Grid 2.0, um, the very uh, famous yep. new part a lot of people are talking about. Let's not go into that conversation. But, uh, no, we already have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the, the profiles, because the, it is some of the biggest profiles, which is, you know, again, needs. Yeah, I'm not going to comment specifically on which profiles are, are going to be supported. I mean, we're going to also, of course, rely on our partners to be sharing some details about that as time goes on. But um, as you probably saw, you know, Jason Southern's uh, tweets about this, uh, I think he described it as buttery smooth uh, at 4K. So um, that should give you some indication at some of the experience things that have been worked on there. 
So when yeah. Horizon 7 comes out, is, is Blast Extreme going to be the go-to protocol to use with Horizon? Um, I'm aware that you're obviously saying that PC over IP is still there and still supported and got the zero client use cases, but yeah. uh, VMware seeing this as, as, as ready to go live, this is going to be the one that when you're ringing up support and, and trying to get some help, they're, they're recommending that you're going with Blast Extreme. So I think it's really going to depend on the customer. Um, you know, I... VMware Horizon has been a two-protocol product for many, many years. People don't realize, but PC over IP is not the only protocol. You can use RDP with Horizon. So, um, it, you know, we've, we've had multi-protocol support for a while, but this will now basically be the third protocol that we're going to be offering. So you have the choice of Blast, PC over IP, or RDP. And, and each of them has their strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, as I mentioned, in a use case situation where you're connecting into a virtual desktop, uh, from a mobile device, you know, having that H.264 hardware decode offload is going to mean you're going to get significant more battery life while using that virtual desktop from a tablet. So that right. would make a great use case for that protocol in that use case circumstance. Um, and there's other circumstances where PC over IP is going to be best case. So like I mentioned, uh, if you've got a need where, you know, you don't want an endpoint that has a software uh, stack. You don't you don't want to run a Windows or a Linux or whatever endpoint device. You want a zero client device. Then piece of IP is going to be a great use case example for those scenarios. So, 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 so Sean, I'm sorry. So you're uh, saying uh, that that PC over IP is still uh, there's still a roadmap for PC over IP. It's it's um, not only supported for the next years, but it's all there's also a roadmap for PC so over IP. So I can't I can't comment publicly on what our specific roadmap plans are, but as I oh, said, oh no, we, no, in detail, but it's it, it's on, still on the development. Um, we we still have a situation where we are able to provide uh, value uh, on PC over IP protocol, and uh, as the market dictates, we will continue to uh, yeah. support it and and do whatever enhancements we need to in the core protocol uh, to uh, to adopt customer needs. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's I think that's the best way to go about it because you know until the product is out and in the market and you get all those corner cases feedback from the field, you really don't know what Blast Extreme or Blaster anything else for that matter is is really going to be capable of and where it fits best and where it doesn't. So I think that's a very very wise thing for VMware to do. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, Dane. Um, you know, to be very clear, um, even though this protocol has been in development for some time now, um, you know, it's it's not currently deployed across you know 10,000 customers. And I'm sure there are going to be corner cases that we had thought about or hadn't tested that when we go to put glass in that circumstance, people are going to be like, oh, it's really not better than PC over IP in this circumstance. And what we tell our customers is, you know, that's great. You know, use PC over IP, and we will. Uh, try to enhance the protocol to handle those corner cases uh, as time goes on. I mean, we're not going to ship this protocol and then smack our hands together and say, okay, we're done shipping this, and let's move on to the next thing. You know, we right. will continue to enhance and improve it over time uh, as customers provide us feedback about areas that um, it's not uh, performing as good as it could be. So what you're saying about uh, the, the protocols and obviously still having the choice available to you there, which is which is really good. And I think us, the people on the podcast, that, that choice is maybe good for us where we can make that intelligent decision about when is the best time to use each protocol. I think the difficulty comes where the majority of the users aren't in a situation to be able to choose which protocol is best for them. And this, I don't know, maybe where the smart policy uh, element comes into it, where the IT administrator is able to set a, a number of criteria uh, and says, obviously, the user uh, 
is logging into the desktop pool, they're from a zero client, clearly they can only go PC over IP, but then when they connect from their mobile, we make the decision that they're then going by Blast Extreme. Is that kind of intelligence functionality built into it at all? Well, the, the clients, of course, can choose a protocol upon connection. So if you want to give your user the ability to pick a protocol, you can do that. Now, of course, as an admin, you can define what protocol is used. So if you want to ensure that only uh, piece of IP is allowed or only BLAST is allowed, you can make administratively dis dis uh, defined decisions on what protocol can be used for the given pool. Um, and there's built-in capability to you know, kind of fail over if... Um, you know, a firewall port isn't open or a client isn't capable or something like that. So there's a lot of intelligence kind of already built in there. Now, I think the question that you're asking is, is there a sort of deterministic algorithm applied that picks the best protocol for the best use case? Uh, and the answer is today there is not. Um, that would be something that would be admin controlled or user controlled. Uh, in the future, of course, we could leverage our smart policy uh, engine to make some of those uh, deterministic uh, configurations. But at the stage, um, it is not configured that way. Uh, we are introducing in smart policy the ability to have an admin-defined piece over IP policy based on some criteria. So you can say if you're from this IP range, you're going to use this piece over IP configuration profile. We do not today, uh, when, we, when we bring the product to market, we will not have BLAST uh, policies uh, defined in that smart policy engine. Uh, of course, in the future, we hope to bring that uh, to the smart policy engine. I really like the, um, the seeing the fact that smart policies are in there. It was something that customers ask for quite regularly to have different policies based upon where the user was connecting from. And I think it's something that, that Citrix have probably been able to do for some time. So it is good to see that in Horizon 7. Yeah, and honestly, that's one of those things that I, I pushed pretty hard for when I got into VMware because having spent a lot of time in the field with customers, you know, I, I lived this kind of a problem every single day of my life where I want to be able to customize the policy from an admin perspective Perspective. But, you know, what we had historically with Horizons, the ability to influence those policies based on GPOs, which is great if you control all the endpoints. It's not so great if you don't control the endpoints because you can't apply a GPO on a device that you don't control. So, right, exactly. um, you know, this, this smart policy thing really came about a lot because, and, and, you know, customers asked for it as well, but I was driving this very, very heavily internally in the course of the last, you know, 16 months or so saying we've got to have a policy engine that we can control on a connection basis not on a predetermined client-host relationship basis. Fantastic. Um, any specific bits in the uh, the App Volumes three release that uh, that you're particularly happy about? So I mean, there's there's a there's a ton of stuff there that's exciting. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think App Toggle, uh, which a lot of people um, had heard about before, that that we are going to allow you to. Um, have the ability to assign an app stack that contained many different applications, um, but control the exposure or visibility of an app based upon a user entitlement or a group entitlement. Um, this greatly simplifies uh, some of the challenges that customers had where they said, okay, I want to turn on these 300 applications, and I'll, I'll pick on Microsoft Office as a great example because with Office, you know, you might want to create an app stack for Office Pro Plus, but then you've got those fringe apps like Visio and Project that you right. only entitle or license to a smaller subset of people. Now, yep. historically, in app volumes prior to 3.0, you would just build a Visio app stack and a, a Project app stack 
but now you're maintaining three different app stacks for all the Office components. And when Patch Tuesday comes around, you need to update Office patches. You're having to crack open three separate Office packages in order to update security patches. And so that becomes a bit of an administrative burden on how you deal with these fringe use case type applications. Well, now with um, you know, the app toggle technology, we can put all of that into a singular app stack patch it once monthly for Office of Patches and control the visibility of that application based on in-app stack entitlements per user or per group, which gives us a lot more flexibility to greatly reduce the number of app stacks you're maintaining while still providing that granularity of visibility to individual users or groups. Yeah, I think um, Harry and uh, Matt Conover have been working on that one for probably, what, six months, nine months, something like that. They announced it around Bryform Denver timeframe. Um, so it's it's good to see it made it into the App Volumes 3 uh, launch bits. Yeah, and then Common Capture as well was another piece that we were uh, working on for quite some time. You know, the ability to um, make it simpler to get applications into uh, app stacks in the first place. And um, we've got some capability that, you know, formerly was named ThinApp where we can provide isolation uh, of an application inside of an app stack uh, included as part of the capability of the product. Very cool. Um, as I said before, I'm looking forward to getting hands on the bits, see what the new unified admin console looks like um, for application management, user environment management, and monitoring. Um, that should be a pretty cool part of the App Volumes 3 release as well. Yeah, and to be clear, you know, this, this new unified admin experience, um, this, this has been underway for quite some time. It's in development for, for almost two years now. Um, and it ultimately is the console that will uh, run, you know, kind of all of the Horizon stack for virtual desktop and published applications and UEM policies and Instant Clone is a part of this and App Volumes oh, wow. is a part of it. UEM is a part of it. So um, what it really does, I think, is it, is, is it takes away some of the barrier that some people have uh, complained about the uh, existing Horizon console as being a bit dated or old or needing a refresh. So this console is going to kind of replace that. Um, and then also allows us to kind of unify what would have been, you know, more than one console in the past to be able to glue these products together into a, into a single unified console. Um, now in this, uh, in this initial release, um, it's going to have a lot of the, the base functionality that you need, but some of the more advanced policy control features of our UEM solution, um, you're still going to need to probably shell out to the, uh, the MMC-based console to configure kind of advanced policy rules. But over time, we're going to build more capability to where that could be um, done in the simplified UX. But for the initial release, you um, will do some simple policy definitions there. But for a lot of the more advanced stuff, you'll have to still shell out to that other console. Yeah, I, I never would have caught that from reading the blogs and whatnot because it was um, buried and embedded within the uh, the App Volumes 3 um, announcement. Uh, it wasn't as clear as you just made it that uh, that it's the framework that will ultimately lead into um, other aggregation of other consoles. Yeah, so and if, cool. you guys, if you guys had seen the earlier stuff around Project Enzo, we had talked about Project Enzo having this unified... Uh, cloud control plane, HTML5 interface, all that kind of stuff. That's effectively the same console that we've been talking about within Enzo uh, is where all of this stuff is kind of coming together. Got it. Okay. So the uh, the hybrid mode functionality is coming to the on-prem products as well, so that's great. 
Yeah, the, the administrative uh, kind of user interface piece of it is is kind of one and the same. What we're doing for hybrid mode and what we're doing for um, the app volumes, the new app volumes architecture uh, is basically bringing all that together in the same kind of admin interface. And this also means, obviously, uh, Linux platform support uh, for the administrative console for app volumes, which is something that... Um, you know, it, it, it was a necessary precursor in order to implement this for the hybrid uh, DAS offering. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Looking forward to that. That's a um, Linux geeks, that's going to be very happy about that. <laughs> a bunch of Linux shops that don't want to have Windows in their enterprise. Well, I think it's... Um, you know, whether whether it's Linux or Windows is really not all that relevant to uh, a lot of customers. But when you start trying to put the platform into the cloud, um, you know, licensing does become a, a big challenge. Understood. So um, I, I don't think uh, we have time to dive deep into into uh, Horizon Air hybrid mode or um, what we mentioned was formerly Project Enzo. If anybody's interested in that, there's um, plenty of sessions. Uh, in fact, your Brightform session, you, you and Harry um, dove pretty deep into that. Is there anything that was um, kind of last quarter or the last 90 days or so, things that changed in Project Enzo um, that are going to shape the direction that it's going more than what was shared, let's say, six, nine months ago? Anything that's like what's new, if you will, uh, as it was coming to market? No, I think a, a lot of this really was um, uh, an opportunity for us getting kind of clarification about how the cloud control plane management all kind of came together because there were uh, different efforts that were happening um, all kind of at the same time. You know, some related to Enzo, some related to where app volumes and UEM was headed in the future. And I think now there's, um, you know, significant clarity that we can share with customers on where this is headed. Um, the, the, the purpose behind uh, Horizon Air hybrid mode is still the same purpose we had when we started Project Enzo, which was the idea that we want to be able to have the ability to have an on-premises workload that has a cloud-based management control plane. So all of that's still kind of the same purpose and intent. Um, and um, as you guys are probably aware, we've kind of talked about this before, we've got customers in private beta with the technology right now, and, and things are going very, very well uh, with those customers. We've, we've already seen some, um, some very, very impressive uh, commentary that's come out of some of our private beta testers, and um, we'll, be, uh, we'll be moving to make that more broadly available uh, fairly soon. Very cool. Looking forward to it. And a big part of that was uh, simplifying the on-premises infrastructure piece of that. Um, and so um, looking forward to seeing how that actually came about. Absolutely. Yeah, so we, we can touch a little bit on a couple of things that um, were announced you know, in, in, uh, in Wednesday's keynote. Um, while it's not directly you know, EUC-focused, there's a significant enhancement that's come about with, uh, with, with vSAN. Uh, 6.2, which uh, brings about a number of enhancements uh, for things like, you know, deduplication and, and things like that, something that was historically not uh, part of vSAN, um, which, you know, it, it depends on your use case as to whether or not deduplication and some of those things are absolutely necessary or not. Um, if you're going to try to do a persistent virtual desktop, then deduplication becomes a pretty important piece because you don't have enough storage to be able to support uh, a full clone image for every single virtual desktop. So there's some key enhancements there that I think will go a long way for those people that are trying to 
uh, support hyperconverged infrastructure where you might have a limited amount of storage in each uh, uh, hyperconverged node. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the dedupe, the compression, um, er erasure coding I saw also came into there as well as uh, quality of service. I mean, those are all, you know, very premium features um, to, to be included at, at the price point of vSAN and, and more importantly with the bundling that historically has happened with Horizon. I mean, the pricing and packaging within the Horizon suite, um, I don't think that's been released for vSAN 6.2 yet. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming it's going to make it very challenging for uh, for customers to pick an alternate solution when the pricing for vSAN is is so cost effective with uh, with Horizon licensing. Yeah, I think the the objective of uh, of vSAN and the objective of our efforts around hyperconverged and vSAN ready nodes has always been about making it you know super simple and super cost effective to do virtual desktops. I mean, everyone that's witnessed this industry. Uh, over the course of the last, you know, six years or seven years in virtual desktops, it went from being, you know, 2x or 3x the cost of the physical PC to being about break-even to now even approaching a stage where it's cheaper than a physical desktop. And it seems crazy to think of that, um, but it's kind of how things have trended. So um, I'm, I'm personally pretty excited um, both about hyperconverged infrastructure, which I've been a fan of for several years now, uh, but also about just extending, you know, uh, super simple vSAN ready nodes into uh, a VDI infrastructure uh, to make it really kind of just, you know, commoditizing VDI to where it becomes a no-brainer to do a virtual desktop. Awesome. Um, anyone else on the call have questions or, or things you want to talk through for, uh, for the vSAN 6.2 announcements? Obviously, it's pretty big stuff. Everybody's gone quiet on us. Well, I think Alexander might have fallen asleep. It's pretty late over by him right now. We adjust. Now everybody's talking. <laughs> I'm just teasing. So and the other thing I, I don't think we really got a chance to talk about, but in, in addition to Blast Extreme, which of course everyone thinks is like the big feature that, that we, we talked about and announced, we actually did a ton of additional things around remote experience and app volumes and all these kind of things. So um, you know, we, we, we've shared some of that in public blogs, um, and uh, as we get closer to the, uh, the GA release, I think you guys are going to see even more details published about these things. Um, Fred Shimsheimer and my team put out a really great blog on uh, Instant Clone that I think uh, will help a lot of people understand what the core benefits of Instant Clone are. So if you guys haven't seen that blog, check out the VMware EUC blog and you can take a look at that uh, detailed Instant Clone blog. Yeah, so there's also another blog I want to highlight. That's actually what Matrix. They have actually uh, also done a comparison of, I, I think, the new vSAN. Correct me, I'm wrong. That's also part of that. With the new functionality? Yes, um, yeah, that is included. Uh, did they do the 6.2 release, or was that based on which shipping today? Because 6.2 hasn't released yet. Or do you know? And I think that answered that question. So was it based on what's available today? I think so, yes. Okay. 
Yeah, I suspect... Um, it's a good place, so that's something I, I do want to recommend uh, also going in and looking at, because there's a lot of people involved in that, in the what matrix uh, comparison, uh, where they're comparing different uh, technologies. Uh, so it's, it's good to go in and see uh, overview of how to converge and virtualization, VDI, and all that stuff. We're, we're currently working on the VDI comparisons now, so hopefully they should be live soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm also I'm working actually on GPU, uh, so there's a, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that will come in there to to help people. Um, yeah, yeah, I think any of those any of those sites that can provide uh, additional details to help educate people on what the capabilities of the products are, I think is 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 helpful because you know, frankly, I, I work for a vendor now, but a lot of times vendors will tell you what they want you to hear about their products and you don't often get a chance to really look at the products independently so I think you know uh, groups like like what matrix uh, as well as you know uh, project BRC which I think is kind of what started a lot of that uh, stuff down that path were, are really great offerings to just help educate people in general about the market yeah I agree um, I mean it's talk about a conversation starter um, a lot of our customers are like hey what how does this thing compare to this thing over here and you know, traditionally the SmackDown white papers have been huge resources to to help educate customers on how things are similar, how things are different, and uh, how different technologies work either together, complement each other, or how they compete with each other. So, um, for anybody that didn't catch it, it's uh, whatmatrix.com. W H A T Matrix is M A T R A X dot com, um, and they provide a lot of good information um, from a third-party agnostic point of view about the different technologies out there. So um, I, I want to start the process of wrapping up. It might take a, a couple minutes, but um, any pieces that, that we didn't touch on or um, important uh, components that, that you think that should be mentioned either for further research or that we can dive into in the last couple minutes here? Well, I think there's, there's tons of things that we did that didn't really get highlighted in um, the, um, the webinar because just in the interest of time there was only a fixed amount of time to talk about uh, a couple high-level items. So I think in Horizon 7 all we talked about was Instant Clone and Blast Extreme, but there was probably 20 new things in Horizon 7 that we really didn't get a chance to talk through in detail. Gotcha. Um, some, some of that's coming in, um, in follow-on blogs, um, and some of it, you know, as we get closer to GA, you'll have a lot more details about that. But just, I mean, an incredible amount of exciting stuff that's gone into Horizon 7 and, uh, and hybrid mode. And I think for anyone that doubts the pace of innovation that VMware is on right now, just take a look at the Horizon 7 release, and it should uh, absolutely uh, uh, quell any concerns about whether or not we're innovating. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I mean, just looking through what's new on each of the products when they when they come out. I mean, you know, some vendors are happy when they have three, four new features in a um, either dot release or major version. And and VMware historically has had dozens of new features, and uh, that really speaks to how fast things are changing in the in the market. Agreed. I mean, you know. Flash redirection going in, URL content redirection. I mean, there's just so many cool things that have gone into the uh, Horizon 7 release that I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised. Very cool. Well, Barry, um, any other questions or, or thoughts for Sean before we start wrapping up? 
No, no, it's all good for me. I think we've covered what uh, I wanted to cover there. As, as as you said, really keen to, to get hold of the code and, and start trying some of these technologies out, digging a little bit deeper and, and starting to think whether I'm uh, ready to write another book again. It's uh, been a big challenge doing the last two releases, so I'm not sure I'm up for doing it a third time, but we'll see. <laughs> well, there's always uh, using your nights and weekends to, to write a book, right? <laughs> you need sleep. Anton, anything else you want to ask Sean before we wrap up? No, no, good, good story. Especially, I was interested in the EMM part. So Sean dives really into it. Happy to see what's coming in the next few months. Very cool. Thanks, Alex? Sean. I think we covered uh, mostly of the new stuff. Um, was particularly interested in learning more about. Uh, the project or the instant clone technology and the formerly Project Fargo stuff and Last Extreme. Good show. Very cool. And Thomas, did we talk enough about GPUs in this session? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. No, I think <laughs> it's okay. Really awesome. wow. I just want to say that I think it's awesome that uh, Sean has joined VMware and now you can see you can see a lot of stuff what's what's coming out of it and it's yeah. Can't wait to get get our hands on this these new technologies. So, well, we all know the only reason why Sean cares about GPUs because VMware now has a compelling story around it. So, oh, I, you're <laughs> not gonna go there. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that makes a wrap. Yep, I think that's a wrap. Uh, <laughs> as as one of the original GPU fanboys, I, I hope that one touches you to the heart. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it has been tons of fun. Uh, I'm really thankful for you guys spending your Monday with us. Um, Sean, safe travels. I uh, hope you have a great week in uh, in Georgia, and we will talk to you all soon. Thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, this is Dane Young. You can catch the recording online, uh, www.euscpodcast.com. Uh, subscribe there and uh, follow us on Twitter. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks. Sean. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye